uh, as we continue on in our series uh, this morning, obviously, uh, we are talking about all I want for Christmas is a big family gathering. Uh, why is family so important? Uh, why is it that uh, your interaction with your family uh, or the lack thereof uh, can make or break the holiday season for, uh, for so many of us? Uh, why is it that, uh, that we feel so stridently uh, so significantly about about family, uh, even if we if we struggle to get along the rest of the year, at least at, at Christmas time, uh, during the holidays, we we want family to be uh, just right. Uh, there are probably a lot of reasons for it. Uh, probably a lot of different motives in our hearts. I think one is you know the family brings us a sense of belonging. It brings us a sense of security. You know the world out there is a tough place to live. And at least when we come home, when we're around mom and dad or brothers and sisters or aunts and uncles, it's kind of as Matt Mary said, you know, the people that have to love you. You know, they're, they're the folks that, that got to stick with you through, through thick and thin. Uh, perhaps uh, there's that sense of, of belonging. And in fact, um, you know, the holidays can be a difficult time too. You talk to people who uh, have lost uh, a family member, perhaps in the last year. Uh, my dad passed away in October, and this is our first Christmas without him, and I'm not sure how, how all the emotions are going to go on Christmas morning. I'm expecting something a little, dip, uh, a little bit perhaps differently because uh, maybe you feel those emotions a little more keenly uh, during Christmas when the holidays as they used to be aren't quite uh, what they uh, were before. Uh, it could be a time of disappointment. It could be a time of loneliness over, over a lack of family or or fractured relationships, as, uh, as Grammy, Grammy Blaume was, uh, was lamenting. What does God think about family? Has God said something, uh, spoken directly about this concept, the, the context of family and how it relates to you and to me? I believe that, that you don't need to be real, real smart to figure out that humans are wired for community. Uh, we are wired to, to uh, be in relationships with one another. I think Simon and Garfunkel really got it wrong when they sang, I am a rock, I am an island. I think the title of that song probably should have been, I'm emotionally closed off, deeply scarred, and in need of significant therapy. But that's a little bit too long of a title for a pop rock song. And so uh, we have to settle for, I'm a rock, I'm an island. Uh, but you listen to the words of that tune, and, and it's a haunting tune, and it's a haunting tune because the message is wrong. Nobody's a rock. Nobody's not. In fact, that's what the singer-songwriter is lamenting, that he is alone and that he feels uh, desperate without human relationships. So if we are wired for community, I think it's absolutely crucial that we understand that God meets us in the context of family, that as God defines his relationship with you, as God describes his relationship with me, the offer that he gives is an offer to join his family. And so as we uh, long for, all I want for Christmas is, is a big family gathering, as we long for that connectedness, as we long for that family intimacy, God is not just one step ahead of us, but, but eternally ahead of us. And he speaks to us in context of family. We're going to look at half of one verse this morning. We're going to, uh, and that may relieve you. Sometimes I, I get into longer, uh, longer verses of Scripture. But this morning as we talk about the family, we're simply going to look at the first half of the first verse of chapter 3 of, of John's first epistle. So if you have a Bible and you want to, want to turn there, you'll have to do it quick uh, because by the time you get there, I may have already been done reading it. But in, uh, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, uh, in the context of family, John writes this. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the reading, even briefly, of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, uh, we come before you this morning as people who are longing to, to belong. Father, each one of us has a deep-seated need for relationships. And the reason we have that need is because you created us for community. Father, some of us may haven't ever even considered the fact that, that we're hardwired to be that way, that it's a natural thing, that it only stands to reason that our lives seem fuller and better when we're in strong, loving relationships. And the most perfect picture of that should be in the family. Yet, Father, we're here this morning as, as people who, who struggle, uh, people who are, who are on a spiritual journey. Some of us are, are, are miles down the road. Others of us are taking the first steps. And some of us may be even here wondering whether we want to begin that journey. And we need to know what it means to truly be in spiritual family. Father, what we really need this morning is your definition of family, not ours, not man's. Uh, Lord, what I have to say really isn't all that important. Uh, There's only your eternal word that, that stands the test of time that will be with us forever. So, Father, we pray that your word would teach us this morning. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for my failures. Forgive me for the things that I did and the things that I didn't do that I should have. Lord Jesus, I need your grace as much or more than any person in this room. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to say to everyone gathered here today. Lord Jesus, we pray uh, by your grace and in your power that you would come, that we could sit at your feet, that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, Well, ever so briefly, let me tell you why John wrote this epistle. Uh, John wrote this epistle because he wanted uh, people to know God and to be in relationship with him. That, that's as, as simple as we can, we can boil it down. John's chief concern is describing and explaining God to people so that they can be in relationship with him. John's epistle is a fairly short epistle. The second and third are even shorter. Uh, but in this particular epistle, which is 109 verses long, again, which isn't that long of a, of a letter as letters go, uh, in 61 different occurrences, John uses, uh, he refers to God. He uses the name of God. Uh, John was a, a disciple of Jesus. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' coming to earth. Uh, he recorded the gospel of John, the history of the life and ministry of Jesus. So we're not getting this secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand. We're not getting this in the third or fourth or fifth uh, century, uh, hundreds of years after Jesus left the scene. This is somebody who walked with Christ. This is somebody who knew Jesus intimately. Within the 12 uh, disciples, there were three uh, of the disciples, three of the apostles that spent the most time with Jesus, and John was one of those three. So if anybody knew the message of Jesus, it was John. Now, you could dispute whether or not Jesus was who he claimed to be, but what you can't dispute is John's knowledge of those claims. And Jesus gives us a context of family that John is going to, to bring into fullness for us, and I believe he's a credible witness, and I believe through the Holy Spirit Uh, He is going to teach us something this morning, just as he did uh, these first readers of this letter. He's going to teach us something about what it means to be in relationship with God and how that connects to our need 
for family. I'm just going to give you two observations in this text this morning that offer some application. The first observation, and again, it's all uh, pretty much found in verse 1, so you're not going to have to flip around a whole lot. Uh, the first observation is that this relationship is a relationship that's built on love. That's a relationship that's built on love. John says, see what kind of love, what kind of love the Father has given to us. This word love that John uses, if you've been around the church at all, you know there are different Greek words for love. It can mean that you like somebody, that you're kind of pals with somebody. Uh, It can mean that you have a fondness for somebody. It can also mean that you have a a deep and abiding commitment for another person. People who exchange marriage vows have that kind of deep and abiding love for one another. In the Greek, it's called agape. Perhaps you've heard that term before, and that's the term that John uses uses. He says that we have a love that is an agape love. Is an, it's an unconditional. Uh, it's a complete commitment. You know, it's the, it's the buddy in the foxhole who dives on the hand grenade to save his friends. It's an all-out, uh, give-everything, no-holes-barred kind of love. It is uh, love uh, that spurs us on to passion and to care for one another deeply. So John begins defining this relationship between God and mankind by using this term agape love. But he also goes on to, to build the case for love and saying that it is a father's love. See what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God. He describes uh, God in this uh, uh, letter. I told you 61 times he uses the name God. But by the time he gets to the first verse of chapter 3, by the time he, he's only about halfway through his letter, he's already used the term or the phrase father 17 different times. He defines God's attitude towards people like you and me in the context of, of the chief giver, of the one who is the family provider, the one who is to be the family's protector. He gives us love in terms of a father's love for his children. Uh, anybody that knows me knows that I'm a movie buff. If they had put Greek and Hebrew to movies in seminary, I wouldn't be preaching this morning. I would be a Ph.D. professor at Harvard teaching Greek and Hebrew. I have this weird connection to movies. I love to watch movies and see how life is portrayed through movies. Uh, Several years ago, Bruce Willis came out with a movie called Armageddon, okay? Now, it was a goofy movie, all right? It's an action-adventure movie. You're not supposed to think during action-adventure movies. You're just supposed to go and cheer for the good guys. You don't have to, you don't have to look a whole lot uh, deeper than that. But Bruce Willis plays this guy named Harry Stamper, and he's a deep uh, driller for oil all around the world, and there's this giant meteor the size of Texas hurtling towards Earth. And in about 21 days, it's going to hit the world and it's going to destroy life as we know. And the only way to stop the meteor is you got to land a, a, a space shuttle on the back of the, of the a meteor. you got to drill a hole 500 feet deep, put a nuclear device in it. It's going to blow up the meteor. It's going to divide it in two, and it's going to miss the Earth. Okay, I told you you didn't have to think, all right? This is, this is, this is rocket science, but it's not, Okay. So they get this guy, Harry Stamper, and they get up on the meteor, and all kinds of wild stuff happens, and people are flying off the meteor, and there's earthquakes and all kinds of stuff. And at the end, they, they finally drill the hole deep enough, and they get the bomb down in there, and they're getting ready to take off, and, and the clicker, this, the remote device, doesn't work. You know, it needs a battery. Come on. <laughs> we spent billions of dollars to get up here, and we don't have a battery. So somebody has to stay behind and detonate the bomb. 
And so they draw straws. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the younger guys, his straw is a short straw. And so Harry goes, I'll take him down. So he takes him down. And, and uh, the other character in the movie is Gracie, Harry's daughter, who's waiting back at home for her fiancé and her father to come back. Just as a coincidence, her dad and fiancé are both on the, on the meteor. And uh, <laughs> this illustration wasn't supposed to be this long, but I'm coming to a point. Um, what was my point? So they get down to the bottom, and Harry shoves the fiancé back into the, the capsule and sends him back up, and he says, I'm going to stay and do it and, and tell Gracie I love her. And so they take off, and Harry stays behind. And at the, at the last second, when the meteor's about to cross the plane where if they don't blow it up, you know, it's going to hit the earth, Harry pushes the button. And the last thing he says before he's blown to smithereens is, we win, Gracie, we win. And there's all these flashbacks that are, you know, to when she was a little girl and he's pushing her on a swing and all this really, you know, emotional stuff in the middle of this action movie. You know, all of a sudden you're going, this is so, you know, look at what the dad did for his daughter. You know, you're just bawling your eyes. I'm, wait, this is an action adventure movie. What's wrong with me? But that's a father's love. A father would give anything for his children to see them be well and safe and cared for. And it is no mistake, and it is no coincidence that John uses that term. He was around Jesus Christ who used that term all the time in talking about his relationship. And when he taught his disciples to pray, what are the first words out of their mouth in their prayer? Our what? Father, right? My dad is God. John wanted us to understand the love of God in the context of a father's love. But notice that this love goes somewhere. It's an act of love. See what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children. The father's love leads to adoption. We should be called children. John's implicit message here is that we are spiritual orphans. He doesn't come out and say it, but he understands that there's a transaction that's taking place when we come to God in faith through Christ. And that part of that transaction is adoption. You're brought into a family. Your, your relationship with God is just not made right from the technical side of the coin, although it is made right. You become righteous in Christ. You become in good standing with God. It, it's as if you haven't sinned, okay? That technical part of it is very much part of it, but John isn't talking technicalities here. He's talking about adoption. He's talking about belonging. He's talking about family. And so he says that God meets us through adoption, We're spiritual orphans, alienated from God, outsiders and strangers, but he adopted us through Christ. I want to go to to 410 just for a second. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us, how? And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means payment. There's a penalty that's due. It's like you get a traffic ticket and you go to court and, and you pay the $100 fine or the $50 fine or you, you, got a, you got a parking meter violation and you pay the $10 fine. That payment is propitiation. It satisfies the debt. God sent. The Father was active in loving us before we came to know Him. And John says, if you're going to follow Jesus... If you're going to be in a right relationship with God, you have to understand that this is a relationship that is built upon love. It's built on this agape, unconditional love that's defined by one who chooses to call himself Father and his actions display that kind of love that leads you to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God. 
I believe John speaks that very, very clearly. But there's, I said there's two observations, and here's a second observation. The second observation is simply this. We need to be reminded of this all the time. We need to be reminded of this all the time. Go back to chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Why do you think John adds that, that additional phrase? I think he adds it because it's a reinforcement. I think he adds it because he he needs to remind us because he knows that over and over and over again, we're tempted to forget that we're children of God. We see ourselves for a whole lot of different reasons that we don't have time to go into this morning in all kinds of different ways other than the children of God. And what happens is we take our focus off of the Word of God. We take our focus off of the promises of God. We take our focuses off of the truth of God that, that is the reality of our lives and we begin to look at other circumstances. It's like Peter getting out of the boat. As long as he's looking at Jesus, he's on the water. When he looks at the waves, he starts to sink. And your life and my life is a constant battle between those two things grabbing for our attention, the love of God through Jesus Christ and the waves of our lives. And John knew that we would be tempted and quite often we would spend more time looking at the waves than looking at Jesus. And so he reminds us, that's what we are. Don't forget, you're a child of God. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. We need reminding life because life circumstances, struggles, distract us from our relationship our father knew a young man who was in college a few years ago and he had a, just a terrible semester, a senior year, first year. And, uh, and he had a plan to deal with, with his heartache and his brokenness. He was going to get in his car and drive away. And he was going to call his parents in a few months and let them know that he was all right. And uh, his parents found out about it, fortunately, and, uh, and went met him at college. And uh, he said, well, I had this plan. I wasn't going to tell you. And they said, well, what's the plan? He said, well, I was going to drive away. That's, that's the whole plan. <laughs> and they're like, are you kidding? Why didn't you call us? We're always here for you. We never turn our back on you. But sometimes, friends, whether you're a college kid or you're a 50-year-old man or you're somewhere in between that, you look at the circumstances and you forget about the family connection with your heavenly Father. And so John says, that is what we are. But I think there's another reason. Another reason we lose sight is because we misbehave from time to time. That's what children do. Sometimes they follow the parents' instruction and sometimes they don't. And God's given us these instructions in his word and John's full of them. Actually, it'd be, it'd be fun to go back through First John. Uh, there's all kinds of instructions on how we should live to be, to be able to grasp the fullness of our relationship. But sometimes we don't do that. Sometimes we go against our Father and it leads to guilt and to shame and to condemnation. We don't feel like a son or a daughter. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever studied the gospel of John, you've read about, um, excuse me, the gospel of Luke, you've read about the prodigal son. And the prodigal son goes away, blows all the inheritance, right? Okay. A wild living, all kinds of, all kinds of stuff he shouldn't be doing. Then he comes back home because he's starving to death and he's going to ask his dad to take him back in. But here's his reason. He says, okay, this is what I'm going to say to my dad. Dad, I've sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's where we go when we misbehave. I'm no longer worthy to be a son or a daughter of God. As if my actions or my attitudes or my thoughts or my behavior somehow prior to knowing Christ made me worthy. 
when in fact the only thing that makes me worthy is the adoptive power of Jesus Christ displayed on the cross for my sins and for your sins. But we see our lives and we go, you know what, we're not, we're not quite living up. We're no longer worthy. And our, and, our, and our misdeeds say to us, you know, I, I probably don't belong anymore. Now, you guys, a lot of you know where we live over on Nurk Avenue in the back of our, of our property is the Missouri Pacific Railroad Tracks. And uh, when I was a kid, we grew up, I grew up in this neighborhood. We used to go and play on the tracks. And we get in trouble all the time. I mean, I, I got so many spankings for playing on the railroad tracks, I, I can't even tell you about it. And, I, and, and, and Tom Wood is here, and his little brother Bill was the ringleader and caused me a lot of spankings. But... Um, <laughs> It's Christmas, I'm not going to throw rocks. But, um, and I, I saw Bill last year, and we were, we were just laughing about all the dumb things we did. But never once did I come home after you know, that and get caught and get a spank, and my mom and dad say, you're out. Pack your bags. You're no, you're to, your name is no longer Tom Ricks. It's now John Doe. Get out of our house and don't ever come back. I didn't live in a manner that was appropriate. I had broken my parents' rules. I had done the wrong things. I felt some shame. But you know what my mom and dad never said? They never said, go and don't come back. How often yet we, when we get to misbehaving against God, well, I'm not worthy. I don't belong. And so John says, we are the children of God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. I think there's one other reason that I just want to mention real quickly as to why we need reminding. And that's because sometimes we have a poor role model in our, in our human relationships. You know, dads blow this. And I talked a little bit about this uh, last week. But earthly fathers can have a negative impact on our image of our heavenly father. I had a friend, and this is a true story. I had a friend who, who told me that when he was a little kid, he would stand on the steps about six or seven steps up. And his dad would come up and he'd say, jump. And his dad would, he would jump into his dad's arms. You know, you do that at the swimming pool or whatever. He said about every fifth time or so, dad would say, jump. And I, and dad would move when I jumped, when I was in midair. And he wouldn't catch me. And then he'd laugh when I hit the ground. I said, why? Why'd you keep jumping? He said, because it felt so good the times he caught me. You know, fathers can really mess it up bad. And it can make uh, an image in our mind of everything that our Heavenly Father isn't, but we kind of give him those qualities or those characteristics because an earthly father hasn't gotten it quite right. (laughs) Katie and I got sideways with each other yesterday. She's our 23-year-old daughter. I called her. I texted her at 7.30. She said, call me when you wake up. She called me at 10.30. And... um, I'm an early riser, but that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, and I said, hey, Katie, you and, we were in J. Jill a couple weeks ago, and I want to get mom one last thing. I'm trying to figure out what to get her. What is she like in J. Jill? And at the other end of the vo- phone, I hear this, <sighs> followed by dad, when we were in the store, I was trying to get your attention. I was trying to point out certain things, and you weren't paying attention. So if you don't know what to get, mom, you have nobody to blame but yourself. I said, Katie, the fact that I didn't listen, is it, it, it's of no consequence right now. Only what's before us is the issue of what to get mom. She said, well, let's start with an apology. I, I'm not making that. You cannot make this stuff up. You think these people are really screwy in their family? We're the ones who put the fun back in dysfunction. So as a mature, loving father, I say to my daughter, Katie, I apologize that you did such a bad job in communicating to me when we were in, when we were in J. Jill. Oh, my goodness, fathers can get it so wrong. Can't we, dads? You guys that are fathers know. 
the Wilkins just, Aaron just had little baby uh, Abigail yesterday, yesterday morning at 7 o'clock. I'm sure Mark's already blown it at least once uh, in the first 24 hours. And, and somehow, somehow we actually warp our children's view of their Heavenly Father. And so John says, you need reminding. We are children of God in the purest, most important sense of the word. How do we remind ourselves of that? How do we, how do we take this little half of our verse and put it into practice of our lives? And I, and I want to give us very quickly four applications for this. The first one is this. The only way that we get into this adoptive relationship with God is through faith in Christ. Coming back to chapter 4, verse 10, if we can skip, sorry. Um, never mind, just leave that right there. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want to remind you that God did the sending. God came up with the plan. The world was broken by our sin, by our rebellion, and God determined that he was going to save us. But he sent his son. He didn't send a philosophy. He didn't send a variety or a myriad of paths by which we could follow them, all that led eventually to him. He sent a son for a particular... He sent the son for the particular reason of pain for your sins and pain for mine. I'm always amazed when people say, well, I don't really want to buy that, that part about Jesus. I want to know God, but I really don't want to know Jesus. And I'm, and I'm always a little bit confused by that because I think, what a gift. What more do you want? What else could God possibly do to demonstrate his love for you that he hasn't already done? We need to understand the first application is Jesus. Have I put my faith in him? It's not going to come any other way. You will continue to live as an orphan if you are apart from Christ. This morning, the most fundamental decision you can make in your spiritual life is to put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation in order to become an adopted son or daughter of God. But it doesn't stop there. And a lot of you have already made that decision. So I want to give just a little bit more application than I think John does. John says that God demonstrates his love through adoption. I demonstrate my adoption through love. In other words, knowing that I'm a child of God changes me. I'm not going to put these verses on the screen, but I'm going to read for you a little bit further down in the chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Listen to what John says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He's talking about Jesus. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and in talk, but in deed and in truth. When I come into the family of God, it changes me. And it begins to make me look at the world in a different way. It causes me to love others the way Christ has loved me. I demonstrate adoption through love. I have a new set of priorities. I have a new set of values because God has captured me and brought me into his family. That actually begins to change my heart. Another way to say it is I begin to look like Jesus, which is the third application. Adoption leads to a family resemblance. Somebody was uh, complimenting me the other day on our oldest son, Nathan. And, uh, and the part that they were complimenting us about on Nathan really does come from his mother's side of the family. I'm not saying that because I don't think my side of the family has anything to offer. I think we're kind of okay too. But they were, they were talking about his steadiness and his good decision-making ability. And, that, and that, that's a Schmidt. That, that's Cindy's side of the family. That's her main name, Cindy Schmidt. Those are the Schmidt's. And, uh, and, I, and I said that to the person. I said, you know, it's very much like his mother. Nate looks like his mom in his actions, in his attitudes. When you come to Christ, 
and the Holy Spirit resides in your heart and you start to read the word of God and you start to apply it to your life and you go, oh, let's not love in word or talk, but, but let's love in deed and truth. What does that mean in my life? And you begin to act on that. You're starting to look like your dad. You're starting to look like your older brother, Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important to understand what I call this theology of adoption. Because I, when I'm brought into a family, I begin to look, I begin to resemble that family. And the same is true on the spiritual front. And that needs to take hold of my life. And I need to pray for God to continue that change, continue to make me look more like Jesus. And then one other application, it's this. Adoption through faith finds its expression through assurance. Adoption through faith, being brought into the family of God, finds its expression through assurance. In other words, assurance that you belong. All that other stuff that kind of bangs up against you and tells you, excuse me, tells you that you don't belong to God, all those waves that come crashing into your life. How do you stand firm in the midst of that? How do you keep focused? How do you you stay centered upon the fact that you're a son or a daughter of God? It's it's because of this adoption. Again, just a couple of verses in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. John says there's going to be those moments when you condemn yourself. I can't possibly be a child of God. And in that moment, the truth of God comes to bear in our life. And the father says, that's not true, son. That's not true, daughter. You belong to me. You're in my family. Rest assured of that truth. Yes, confess your sins. Yes, long to look more like your older brother, Jesus, but know fundamentally that nothing separates you from my love. You can't get kicked out of this family. I paid too great a price to bring you in, to ever let you go. feel kind of bad for the Blame family. Wish they'd had a little bit nicer Christmas. I hope all of us have a, have a wonderful Christmas, and I hope it is surrounded with family and with friends and with people that we cherish that are important to us. But more fundamentally than that, I pray for each one of us that we will belong to an eternal family, that we will know for certain, certain that we've been adopted, that you're a son, that you're a daughter of God, and that we'll live in the reality of that family, not just during the Christmas season, but all next year and every year until we stand before Jesus and we see the reality of our hope. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you created this longing in our hearts for family. Uh, It is no uh, happenstance that that's how we think. It's how we feel. Family is the most intimate portrayal of, of human relationships because it points to a much deeper relationship that you have created for us in Christ Jesus, that you call us into your family. And Father, there are many things in our lives that push against that. Some of it's of our own doing. We just, we just don't follow you. We don't love you. We don't serve you like we should. And then all of a sudden, we feel guilty. We feel ashamed. And Father, we need to repent. We need to acknowledge our sin for what it is. But Father, may, may we never be in the place where we doubt your love and doubt our adoption through you. God, may we know that that is as firm and as secure as heaven itself. And may we rest in that family relationship this morning, perhaps for the first time ever, perhaps we were reminded again this morning for the thousandth time, but wherever we are, Lord Jesus, 
May we rest as a son, as a daughter of God, through your grace and mercy on the cross. We pray in your name. Amen.